Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. We'll be looking at the first two verses of this great book and this great chapter, Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 1 and going to verse 2. I believe if you're using the Pew Bibles, that's on page 625 in the Bibles provided there. While you're turning there, I want to thank you for the welcome that you and the session have extended to me uh, today. It is always a great privilege to be here in this place with this people. I have a, a, a picture that someone gave me of the front of 10th Church right next to my desk in my study in Greenville, and whenever visitors or students come through and ask me about it, I, I say virtually the same thing, which is that God in his kindness did business with me here in a profound way. He really, he really did a work in my life, and this was back in almost 30 years ago now, but I'm very grateful that he still continues to work and continues to work particularly through the reading and preaching of his word. So let's, let's take hold of that great privilege and, and look at Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 2. I'll read the text, and then after reading it, We'll ask the Lord's blessing once again on his word. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray together. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We would be in the dark if you had not revealed yourself to us in and through your word. We thank you for the instruction we receive, for the conviction of sin we receive from your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we thank you as well that this morning we come in confidence knowing that your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is indeed the sword of your spirit. And we ask this morning that you would wield that sword in our midst, that you would convict us of sin, that you would train us in righteousness, that you would thoroughly equip us for every good work, and in so doing, Father, we ask that you might see fit to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, in our midst. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're coming in at the end of this very significant prophetic work, the book of Isaiah, and so it's worthwhile for us just to take a moment at the beginning of our time here and think about the context of Isaiah 66, the context for Isaiah and, and his own ministry, and then the context for the people to whom Isaiah is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah had a long ministry among the people of Israel. He was called in 740 BC and he probably continued to minister for almost 60 years after that time. And this, this comes at the end of his ministry. And so from Isaiah's perspective, as we think about the context for him, we might say that these are among his last recorded words. This is the last oracle we have, the last sermon that we have of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66. And with respect to the people 
we could also say this, that as it comes near the end of Isaiah's ministry, it also addresses many things that Isaiah had spent a great deal of time and a great deal of his ministry prophesying. Isaiah here is addressing people who have suffered the judgment of God, judgment that Isaiah, in fact, had to tell them about, had to foretell in their midst. And they often didn't enjoy hearing what Isaiah had to say, but nonetheless, Isaiah prophesied, he preached faithfully, and here these things have come about. And he's writing to these people who are under the judgment of God and yet are under the judgment of God and looking forward to great future promises. Probably in the last month, you've heard some of these promises that come from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 7, he prophesies the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 9, we have that wonderful chapter that describes the coming Messiah, and it says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And in addition to those messianic promises, we have these promises of God fulfilling these marvelous, this marvelous restoration. If you look just a verse before, the verse that we started with in Isaiah 65, 25, what it says and what Isaiah promises to them is the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the servant, serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And so these people are in a peculiar position in that they are suffering and they are uh, bearing the weight of some of God's judgment against them because of their sin. And yet, and yet they're looking forward to great promises. And in some measure, that's not unlike the way in which the New Testament describes us as Christians. the Apostle Peter refers to us as elect exiles, and, and the Apostle Paul talks about the limitations of our knowledge even now. He compares us to the wilderness generation in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a savior. And so that, that feeling of being between promise on the one hand and fulfillment on the other is one that is not simply for Isaiah's day, but really is for our day as well. Now, these people were looking forward to a glorious restoration. They were looking forward to the Lord doing a great work in their midst because they knew the promises that God had given to them. And yet Isaiah, in this last sermon that he gives, reminds them of two very significant truths. And I would submit to you today that these truths really form the basis or act as bulwarks really in our own understanding of our lives today as well. The, the truths that Isaiah reminds them of are truths that we need to be reminded of, perhaps especially on, on the eve of a new year as we think about next year and pray for God to fulfill his promises of blessing to his people, for God to sustain us, for God to meet our needs. We need to be reminded of these things perhaps even more in our own day. Well, what's the first truth? The first truth that Isaiah reminds them of, the first truth that he bases his whole last sermon upon is really a truth that answers this question. It's maybe the biggest question any human being could ask, and that's this question, who is God? Look at what Isaiah says right at the beginning. Thus says the Lord, 
Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. See, what Isaiah reminds the people of here, first of all, is the absolute power and authority and majesty and grandeur of the God whom they worship, the God of whom Isaiah had preached for all those decades. Now look at the language that he uses. We know from the scriptures that God is not confined to space just as he's not confined and defined by time in the way that we are. But the imagery that Isaiah gives us is remarkable imagery. He, he, he first looks to space, to the heavens, these, this vast expanse that we have. And he says, for the, for the Lord, heaven is his throne. I was reflecting on this a number of years ago, probably close to 20 years ago, and I was uh, speaking to a man in our congregation at that time who worked for NASA, and I asked him a question, and, and you can correct me afterwards if the information he gave me is wrong. I haven't gone back to look at it, but I asked him, how, how big, as, as far as we know, how, how large is the universe? How big is space? And I think he said something, if I remember correctly, I think he said something like it's 50 billion light years and expanding. I don't know whether that's precisely true or not or if that's what the best scientists say today, but nonetheless, it's vast. It's vaster than anything we can imagine. And you've probably had the experience at some time in your life of looking off into the stars and just marveling at their greatness. And Isaiah casts our mind to that scene and says, for the Lord, that's, that's simply his throne. And, and then he looks at the earth and think again about the size of the earth. Think of every place you've ever visited or every place you'd like to visit or anyone you've met from a faraway land. Think of the vastness of our earth and all the unexplored dimensions of it. And what does Isaiah say in comparison to the Lord, the earth, he says, is my footstool. Now, in a sense, this isn't new territory for Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord uses this exact language to describe his saving purposes and describe the greatness of his saving purposes. When he, in Isaiah 40, records his coming salvation, Here's what he says. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, that is the Lord, who sits above the circles of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. There are heights and depths and spans of God that you and I cannot imagine, let alone fully understand even now. It's why David, of course, in Psalm 8, when he is staring at the heavens, says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? We know why Isaiah is saying this. He's directing their attention to a particular error that they had, and he deals with that at the end of verse one. But it's worth looking at what he says in verse two before addressing that error, because he moves along in the same vein. He talks not only about the greatness and the the grandeur of God, 
but he talks about the fact that God is the creator God. Look at verse two. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Now one theologian who reflected on the fact that again and again when you look at the Bible and you see how the Bible describes God, the most common way it describes God is that God is the creator. He's the creator of all things. And this theologian concludes this, that no right relation with God is conceivable apart from this basis. It positions us in the proper relationship to God. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, what he means is this. When you realize God's greatness, and you realize that God is the creator, then you have to look at yourself and say, I'm a creature. I'm a contingent being. In him, the scriptures say, we live and move and have our being. He's the source of life and of all things. And we very infrequently reflect on this truth about the grandeur of God. As a matter of fact, a book from about 30 years ago, in fact, I think exactly 30 years ago, that was published that had a great influence on my life, perhaps you've read it yourself, is by a theologian by the name of David Wells, and he wrote this book analyzing the evangelical church, and what he said was this. This was his diagnosis of the church. He said, it is this God, majestic and holy in his being, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. He has been replaced in many quarters, perhaps in your own thinking, in many quarters by a God who is slick and slack, whose moral purposes turn out to be avuncular advice we can disregard or negotiate as we see fit, whose word is a plaything for those who wish merely to listen to themselves, whose church is a mall in which the religious do business. And what Isaiah wants for his hearers and what Isaiah and his prophecy demands of us today is that we do away with that kind of conception of God, that we actually confront the God of the Bible, the God whose greatness is unsearchable, whose paths are beyond tracing out, the God who's the creator of all things, the God who's the source of our life and of our being. And you, and you may say to yourself, well, that's not how I like to think about God. I have a, another conception of God, a smaller conception of God, a, a conception of God that, that fits more neatly with my life and my desires and what it is that I'd like. And Isaiah will have none of that. The Bible really will have none of that. Isaiah is clear that this is the God. This is the God of history. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is the God of the scriptures. And you see, the question we have to ask ourselves at this point is, well, if he is that kind of God, then what am I to do with that? How do I, how should that understanding of God change me? One way it should change you is it should actually bring you great comfort. There's a story earlier in Isaiah, it's recorded for us in Isaiah 37, about King Hezekiah, a great, a godly king, really, of Judah. And Hezekiah receives this terrible news 
that it appears that the king of Assyria is going to take Jerusalem. In fact, we know from other sources outside the scriptures that he had Jerusalem surrounded, and he, he, he thought he was going to take Jerusalem, and he, he sent a messenger to Hezekiah to tell Hezekiah, Hezekiah, there's nothing you can do. There's no escape. I'm going to take Jerusalem next. Jerusalem is next on my list, and none of the other armies that have tried to stop me have been able to. And Hezekiah responds in a way that I think should be instructive to us today. After he receives the message from the king of Assyria, the text tells us this, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, and listen to what he prayed. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth because you have made heaven and earth. So what Hezekiah knew is what all of us need to know today. It's what the people of Isaiah's day needed to know. That this God, this creator God, this God of heaven and earth, this sovereign great God is the only one to whom we can look for our help. Remember how the psalmist puts it, our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God's blessing is sure, the psalmist said, because he made heaven and earth. I would urge you, if you are struggling in any way, to receive consolation from this, to look to this this God, this God of the scriptures, this creator God of heaven and earth, this God who says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And when you reflect on that, there's another obvious conclusion, and that conclusion is the one that he reaches in that rhetorical question at the end of verse one. Because God is the great God, because God is the creator God, then he asks this question, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Now Isaiah here is addressing a very specific situation that is going to take place in the history of Israel where some among the Israelites will believe that in fact actually what they needed to do, what they could do, what would really bring some kind of solid foundation to their relationship with the Lord was to build a new temple. And it wasn't altogether bad. There's a period in Israel's history after this where two of the prophets encouraged the people to do just that, to build the temple as the Lord had commanded them. But what Isaiah is getting at is not whether or not they should build that temple per se, but rather the confidence that they were placing in it, the way in which they saw that temple, that place as, in a sense, the the mediating point uh, for their relationship with God, the way in which they established their confident hope in him. You know, it's striking because Solomon, when he built the great temple, actually understood that this was a, a potential error that people could, could make when looking at the temple. And in 1 Kings chapter eight, we have a record of Solomon uh, praying, dedicating the temple. And what he says right at the outset is exactly what Isaiah's saying here. He says in 1 Kings eight, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. 
how much less this house that I have built. And you see, we may not have exactly that same temptation. We may not, may not fall into precisely that error looking to a physical structure. But I think it's the case that very often we look to things that we can do, to things that our hands, as it were, have built, to privileges that we have, and we forget that God is the creator of all things, that nothing that we would construct could contain him. Remember how Paul puts it, who has ever given to God that he should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. And this is, this is the reason, incidentally, why Stephen, the first martyr, quotes from this verse. He quotes directly from Isaiah 66. It's one of the few passages he quotes from verbatim. And he does it because he's been accused by the Jewish leaders of speaking a word against the temple. In fact, this is what they say at the end of Acts 6. Stephen's sermon is recorded in Acts 7. They say this, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. And we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses. And what does Stephen say in response? He says, the Most High does not dwell in temples made by human hands. And then he quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. He understood the appropriate context of what Isaiah was saying. If you understand the greatness of God, if you understand the implications of creation, no right relation with God is possible without understanding these things. Then you understand their implications for anything of human construction. Now that brings up a very obvious implication, and I think an obvious question. It happens to be the next question Isaiah answers. Once you've, once you've answered the question of who is God, who is this God of whom the Bible speaks, who is this God whom Isaiah served and worshiped, then, then, then the next question you should be asking in your mind is this, to whom does this God look at in light of his sovereignty and his creation? If the temple isn't the answer, if something we construct with our own hands is, is not sufficient, is not fitting for this great God, then what does God look for? What kind of person is he seeking? And of course, in verse two, Isaiah answers this, although he answers it in a way, I should warn you, that is precisely the opposite of what we might expect. Look at what he says, beginning in the middle of verse two. But to this one, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, each of these words is very important. We want to slow down and take them, look at them carefully. He says, this is the one to whom I will look. And he starts with this word, he who is humble. Now, humility, of course, in the scriptures is presented as vitally important for the Christian life. 
As a matter of fact, the Bible says in many Many of the best expositors of Scripture have repeated this over and over, that pride really is our great enemy as human beings. We're always tempted to lift ourselves up in the face of God. And when we do that, what we're forgetting, among other things, we're probably not judging ourselves rightly to begin with, but we're certainly not understanding who God is when pride creeps in. But actually, this word that's translated humble has an even more severe connotation to it Very often, the Hebrew word that's translated here as humble is actually just translated as afflicted or poor or needy. It's the word that Moses uses when he describes the bread that they would eat in the Passover. He calls it the bread of affliction, using this same term. He he talks about poor men within Israel using the same term for humble. We see the same in Job. When Job describes the poor, this is the word he uses. And actually, Isaiah uses it too in a way that is much stronger than this translation of the word humble. In Isaiah 48, 10, the Lord is speaking to his people and what he says is this, see, I have refined you, though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And what he said he would do and was doing in Isaiah 48 is exactly what he says here about the one to whom he will look. Who does the Lord seek out? What should we value as Christian people? Well, it's this, humble, afflicted. And then he continues by also using this term, he who is humble and contrite of spirit, And this may be an even more surprising designation because this term is more often translated by something like the word smitten. It's a word that's used in in battle descriptions for those who are struck down in death. Uriah, it says, was struck down and died. And that's the word here that's translated contrite. It's to be struck down in your inner being. You see, this is precisely what the people hearing Isaiah's message were not doing. They were thinking about a visible temple and they were in in that way diminishing, they were diminishing God and they weren't thinking about humility or affliction or the value of their suffering. And of course, we're susceptible to just the same kind of thing today. You remember what Jesus said when he had that encounter with James and John. James and John came to him and asked to be seated on his right hand and on his left hand when he entered into his glory. And he, of course, understood all the the, the things they had wrong when they asked that question, but he also goes directly at this question of greatness. And he said, I know how it works in the Gentile world. I know that their rulers lord it over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever wishes to be greatest shall be the servant of all. And then he goes on to define his entire ministry, even his coming death in those terms. The son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, that becomes so determinative in the New Testament's description even of the church 
Those terms that Jesus uses are terms that are picked up by the apostles to describe the kind of mind that Christians should have in themselves. It's used by, these terms are used by the apostle Peter to describe the role of elders, not lording it over them as Jesus says the Gentiles do, but, but acting as servants. And of course, we see that this kind of ambition and rivalry that is the opposite of what Jesus describes is the very thing that the Bible says uh, cannot be present among his people. You know, it's not just a New Testament doctrine. In the Old Testament, we see the same thing, not just in Isaiah 66, but I'm struck by the fact that in Deuteronomy 8, as Moses is about to take the people into the land, he warns them about what it will what will happen to them when they enter the land. He, and he doesn't warn them against the fact that they might face adversity. He doesn't warn them against the challenges and their need to trust God in the midst of challenges. That's, that's true. That's a warning we need. We need to trust God in the midst of challenges. But actually, what Moses says in Deuteronomy 8 is something quite different from that. He says, actually, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart may be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It's the great danger that God's people always face, the danger of pride. But who is it that God looks to? God looks to those who are humble and contrite of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is entirely counter to even the way we think within the church. Perhaps you're new to the church, and what you think when you think about Christian people is those who have their lives together and and those who are therefore in good standing with the Lord because of all that they've done. And actually the Bible presents the opposite picture. No, no, it says those who come to God must come in humility. They must be smitten down in their spirit. They must be humbled by their God. We want self-assurance and aggressive initiative for our own goals. We value that kind of success. We try to stay as close as possible to people who exude that kind of success, and yet that's not what the scriptures point us to, least of all here in Isaiah 66. You know, it's also worth checking ourselves at this point because Matthew in his description of that encounter with James and John includes a detail that Mark's gospel does not include. Matthew tells us that actually James and John asked that question of Jesus about his right hand and his left hand because they were were provoked by their mother. Their mother actually pushed them forward and said, you need to ask Jesus this question. I think that's very insightful psychologically. Often we might say, well, I understand for myself that I need to embrace Service that I come to God humbly, but that's not what I want for my children. That's not what I want for the next generation. That was James and John's mother, and Jesus rebukes her in the same way he rebukes them. Now notice this other descriptor as well at the end of verse two that tells us the kind of people to whom God looks. 
It says humble and contrite of spirit. But then, but then it says this, and trembles at my word. Now once again, it's worth reflecting on the Hebrew that lies behind this English translation because Isaiah actually used this Hebrew word, this precise Hebrew word, one time earlier in the book in Isaiah chapter 19. And the way it's translated there in Isaiah 19 is as shuddering with fear. So we can't water down this term that Isaiah uses that's translated trembles. And I wonder, just as you think about yourself today, is this something that anyone who knows you well would say about you? If I asked the people who know you best and said, what's, what's she like, what's he like? Well, they say, well, what you have to understand is this, she, she trembles at the word of God. He, he opens God's word and takes all of it with the utmost seriousness. There's nothing trivial about coming to God's word. The description that he gives here is the opposite of triviality. Do you think this way about God's word? When it's open and preached, when you open it yourself? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say that almost any distraction will take our minds away from God's word as we seek to read it and listen to it. But what does Isaiah say? No, no, the one I look to is the one who trembles at the word of God. Uh, A few months ago, I had the opportunity as I was talking to some students to reflect on just a basic question. I had to ask myself this basic question, what would my life be without the Bible? And, and, And I concluded very quickly that I would be utterly in the dark about so many things. I would be lost and aimless in so many ways without hope really in the world and without any kind of instruction or direction. God's people not only treasure God's word, not only understand that they have to pay attention to it, they actually, he says, tremble at it. What would you trade for the word of God? Success or ease or getting out of an uncomfortable situation? Would you trade that for God's word? That's not the picture that Isaiah gives. Anthony Tuckney, who was a professor of theology at Cambridge and one of the members of the Westminster Assembly put it this way, and this might be a good thing to remember as you enter the new year. Brethren, he said, get acquainted with God's word and promise as soon as you can and maintain that acquaintance everlastingly. Know it as soon and as long as you can and you shall never find it tripping and failing. But you may, after long experience of God, say of it, and here he quotes from Psalm 119, I have known of old that thou hast founded it forever. See, the word of God and the revelation that God gives us in his word won't let you down. It will instruct you today. It will instruct you in this new year. It will provide for you comfort and direction. And ultimately, of course, it will point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, I would say this, that's exactly what this text is doing as well. Because while this text describes with great clarity 
what a believer should strive for, what we should value, what we should promote. Humble, contrite of spirit, trembles at my word. There's something else that we have to see here. But if we look at the whole scriptures and we pull the thread on Isaiah 66 verse two, what we see is that it ultimately points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of person Christians ought to be, but it's also precisely how the Bible describes our Lord. Think about that first word, translated humble or afflicted. Well, that's precisely the way the psalmist describes the Messiah in that great messianic psalm, Psalm 22. In fact, we might almost put a capital A next to afflicted one in Psalm 22. He is the one who is humbled. He is the one who is afflicted. And the psalmist writes, for God has not despised or scorned the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Or what about this word contrite or struck down, smitten? Maybe... This reminds you of a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 53, where Isaiah describes the suffering servant and says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him smitten of God and afflicted. And I I need not remind you of how Jesus followed the word of God. Very God of very God, and yet he says, Not my will, but yours be done. I have come down to do the will of my Father. We know that even on the cross, he was meditating on the word of God. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because his every thought was taken captive to God's word. And because of his perfect obedience, because of his perfect embodiment of these things to which we are pointed. The Bible says we can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can know this sovereign, great creator God. We can, as Paul says, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. See, when we consider the distance between our creator God, when we really reckon with that distance between the creator of heaven and earth and ourselves, and even when we look at the description of the one to whom he looks, we recognize that even on that score, we are utterly inadequate. We strive for these things, and we ought to strive for these things, and these ought to shape how we view our Christian lives. But if what is required is perfect affliction, contrition, and trembling at the word of God. We fall far short. But of course, Jesus Christ does not. He's the perfect substitute, the perfect one to whom God looks. And the Bible says that it's only through our union with him, through faith, that we can have standing with this God of heaven and earth. And how do we approach this God? How do we come to him in saving faith? Well, we do so humbled. We do so aware of our own need, of our own sinfulness, of our own inadequacy. 
and looking only to him and to the promises of his word at which we tremble. I want to say this with as much clarity as I can today. Jesus Christ says this, the one who comes to me I will not cast out and I will raise him up on the last day. If you, if you know something of your great need as a sinner, of the great goal fixed between you and your creator God, then come to Jesus. Jesus promises that in coming to him you will find rest for your weary soul. And the Bible says today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As you flee to this salvation offered only in Christ, humble yourself before the living God. Be broken by his word and die to yourself. And in doing so, receive the life that only he can provide, a life in which he promises you his spirit who will work in you to do these very things that he commands us to do. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word. It offers us such clarity, such hope, such promise. And yet we confess that in the light of your word, we fall so far short. Even our aspirations as your people are so contrary to your word. Shape us, mold us, change us. Cause us to have the mind of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.